0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Violet Podcast. This episode is in response to a listener's request that we cover LGBT issues. Acceptance of homosexuality has been a major change in most Western societies over the last 20 or 30 years, but remains something over which there is considerable global debate. In particular, acceptance of homosexuality is strongly negatively correlated with religiosity, across religions and across the world. So we'll be spending 40 minutes discussing the tension between freedom of religion and freedom of sexuality. Apologies for the sound quality. We had some technical issues with this episode that we didn't realise until we got to editing. We hope you stick with the episode, even if it is a little difficult to hear in places, because we think this is a really valuable discussion. As always, thank you very much for listening. We always try to make it clear that we are very happy to receive requests on podcast episodes and podcast topics we might talk about, and this week we received just such a request to discuss LGBT issues. Now, there are a lot of issues we can talk about, uh, a lot of specific issues we can talk about under that umbrella, um, such as trans rights and uh, discrimination against trans people, such as same-sex marriage But we thought we'd start with the most fundamental of those, which is simply the acceptability of homosexuality in society.
1: So the foundation of the argument for LGBT rights is something we've mentioned before on this podcast, uh, Mill's idea of the harm principle. And just to remind our listeners, the harm principle is the idea that the government should not legislate against self-regarding actions, uh, those are actions which just involve one individual and no one else, and they should not legislate against other regarding actions which are consensual. That is to say, actions involving more than one individual to which both parties are rational beings who consent. The government should only regulate uh, actions between individuals which cause harm, i.e. where one party does not consent to that action. So in that sense, that is the, that is the main liberal argument underpinning social and legal acceptability of homosexuality and LGBT activity and relationships. The idea that if you have two rational human beings who both consent to LGBT activity, or if you just simply have one rational human being who has LGBT thoughts or an LGBT identity, uh, that is something which is not causing harm and therefore should be accepted and not legislated against. And it's worth reminding listeners that the harm
0: principle is not a sort of specifically LGBT theory. The harm principle is one of the axiomatic, central, fundamental um, theories of liberalism in general. And it has its problems. Defining what is uh, harmful to other people is sometimes difficult. And defining who is a rational person can sometimes be difficult. But in general, in theory, the harm principle underpins most of liberal political ideas and it applies in this case no more so or no less so than in other walks of life and other political debates.
1: And just to clarify two further things from that, in the harm principle the idea or the concept of harm is such that only the individuals participating can define something as harm. If someone outside that um, that pairing of individuals or if someone outside that one individual on their own thinks something is harmful but the individual or individuals do not, then it does not count as harm. A relevant example might be if a woman is wearing a hijab and someone on the outside says she is being oppressed or she is oppressing herself, it is not harm unless that woman herself does not consent and doesn't want that to happen. You cannot harm yourself in the view of the harm principle. The second thing, uh, based on what we've just said, is that the harm principle is really the basis for all legislation in modern Western societies, which enables tolerance of any minority group, not just LGBT uh, individuals, uh, but also religious minorities or cultural minorities or ethnic minorities. All of those are protected under the umbrella of the harm principle, allowing for different minority views and actions and lifestyles to exist uh, without being suppressed by the majority. If I might be pernickety about what you just said, I don't think
0: is the bedrock of legislation. I think it's better to say, in our view, should be and purports to be, but is not necessarily all of the time.
1: Yeah, and I think it's probably slowly moving in that direction, and positively so in, in our view, but yeah, not not closely. So at this point, it's probably useful to dispel some common myths or common arguments uh, against LGBT rights before we get to the, to the trickier debates. So here, here are the kind of straw man arguments, uh, if you will, that, that we're going to knock down, which are quite common, but in our view are, uh, are not really very persuasive. The first one is the argument that being gay is not natural. Um, and the simplest way to dispel this is that it is merely an example of the naturalistic fallacy, the idea that what is natural is good uh, and what is unnatural is bad. Uh, there are plenty of things which are natural, which are terrible, like not having medicine or clothes and dying of disease by the time you're 40. Um, And there are plenty of things which are artificial, which are good, like houses uh, and having access to an electrical grid and medicines and all the rest of it. So on that basis alone, the argument that being gay is not natural is not really a convincing argument. But you can even go further than that and say, well, even if we accept the naturalistic premise that what is natural is good, Um, homosexuality or same-sex relationships have been uh, documented in at least 500 major species of animals, uh, and there are probably many more that we we don't know of. So homosexuality is widely evident in the animal kingdom. Uh, It is not an aberration in humans caused by some deviant gene, or some deviant uh, choice.
0: Yes, and I think this is the most um, harmful iteration of the naturalistic fallacy which does appear in lots of places and my suggestion to any student who um, sort of uh, puts forward a naturalistic fallacy argument for something is to go and watch David Attenborough documentary and watch a cute fluffy baby penguin get very naturally ripped to shreds by a leopard seal um, (laughs) and then tell
1: me that all that is natural is good. A second common and not very convincing argument against LGBT rights is the idea that homosexuality or same-sex activity or thoughts are part of a broader category of sexual deviance including paedophilia and bestiality and necrophilia and all of those things are equally deviant and equally bad and all of them should be forbidden and uh, taboo in society. And there's again a number of ways of putting down this argument. Um,
0: I think it stems from people's idea of things that are That disgust them or things that people don't like as being morally wrong and also a tendency that a lot of people have to think that if they don't like something so you know if you're if you're heterosexual homosexual acts probably seem pretty weird to you you don't have any interest in taking part in them and therefore they must be wrong for other people and not having the sort of ability the theory of mind to step into someone else's head and say okay, well, just because I have no interest in this thing and I find it rather strange, that person says that they enjoy it, who am I to judge them? They just have different preferences to me. And so when we're thinking about sort of what activity is permissible and what activity is not and where the line is between things that I find strange and things that are um, so different as to be wrong, we need to have some sort of axiom, we need to have some sort of theory to fall back on, rather than just saying, well, I don't like that, therefore it's morally wrong. And that leads us neatly back to the start of the podcast, because in our view, the axiom that we should start from, in that sense, is the harm principle. So in the case of paedophilia, um, that is breaking the harm principle, because children are not old enough to consent to sexual activity. Or rape in any form, or sexual harassment in any form, is breaking the harm principle because one person has not consented to the activity, and so it is causing them harm. Whereas two consenting adults uh, performing some sort of homosexual activity is not breaking the harm principle in any way, and
1: therefore cannot be seen to be wrong. Um, I do also think that part of the idea of, of lumping in homosexuality with paedophilia and and bestiality is is something that I think comes, I have no statistical evidence for it, uh, but I do feel that's something which is more common amongst men than women as in making that claim. And part of this I think uh, is also to do with uh, a lack of understanding around consent and a feeling that if someone is gay they will attempt to have sex with me and ignoring the idea that you know, consent is still an important part of any relationship or activity. Uh, and I do think there is, to some degree, an, uh, a correlation between a lack of understanding of consent and aversion to homosexuality because of the fear that gay people are out to get you somehow.
0: Absolutely. And I would invite any man who's made uncomfortable by homosexuality to reflect on whether that is the reason why, um, because I do agree with that. I think that uh, one of the main causes of, of homophobia is that men uh, view it as their right, to sort of sexual dominion over women uh, and see that as the natural form of things. And then men who are attracted to men, they suddenly see what that view of sexuality is like from the other side, suddenly see what life is like as the target and and quite rightly find that really uncomfortable. Um, But the the thing that the, the issue there that they need to take up is their view of sexuality and of men's
1: sort of sexual rights over whatever they like rather than homosexuality. Um, a third argument, which is commonly made against LGBT rights, is broadly what I'd like to call the won't somebody think of the children TM argument. Um, and this argument broadly claims that children who are raised in an LGBT family, i.e., with two mothers or two fathers, um, will somehow grow up less healthy, um, less mentally stable, uh, or more prone to being LGBT themselves there isn't really much to say to refute this apart from there has never been a statistical study which demonstrates this um and it just appears to be a claim a spurious claim uh, with no empirical evidence to support it
0: i also think it's at its heart deeply circular in that um if you grow up in a family with lgbt parents it's obviously very likely that that family is going to be very lgbt friendly that the children's upbringing is going to teach them about sexuality in general and how sexualities are acceptable. And therefore, it is more likely that that child will feel free to identify with their true sexuality, whatever that is. Um, And so I think part of this argument is a sort of circular argument going, well, being gay is bad. If we allow gay people to have children, that sort of creates a cycle of gays and that, that, that means more of this bad thing you can't use that as an argument as to why homosexuality is wrong because it's it's depending on the assumption that homosexuality is wrong in the first place. And another argument that falls down uh, in the same way is the idea that, and you see this a lot in uh, especially sort of the American discourse around uh, homosexuality and the church, um, it's that homosexuality is a choice. And of course this is again a circular argument. Now homosexuality may or may not be a choice. We'll deal with that in a second. But even if it is, that isn't an argument that it's wrong. Not all choices are wrong. Some are wrong. Some are right. Um, If people have chosen to be gay, but there's nothing wrong with being gay, then why does it matter? So whether or not it's
1: a choice is not a legitimate argument as to whether it's right or wrong. In terms of whether it is a choice, uh, this is something which has not really been Empirically determined, there's a lot of uh, scientific literature out there uh, with contrasting views. The consensus at the moment seems to be, it is it does have a largely genetic basis, uh, but it's also determined by some degree, uh, to some degree, by environmental factors. Uh, in that respect, then, it's a lot like height, really. Maybe genetically predisposed uh, to a certain height, but things like your nutrition, your environment, how much know, you exercise... Uh, all of those things contribute to what your final height would be. Uh, Sexual orientation is quite similar in that regard, it seems. But yeah, as we were saying, even if it is a choice, so what? Loads of things are choices like what religion you follow or what football team you follow. And again, unless you first in itself show that the thing is wrong or immoral, whether it's a choice or not is totally irrelevant. So in short, there is some
0: evidence... LGBT families might be having LGBT children and in doing so causing nobody any harm whatsoever. The final common argument that we can think of uh, that puts forward the idea that homosexuality might be wrong is that somebody's religion might state that homosexuality is wrong. Um, Many of the major religions that are around today have uh, holy books or holy texts or collections of established uh, writing that underpin the beliefs of that religion, and in many of those religions, it fairly explicitly states that homosexuality is sinful or wrong in whatever language, and that's much more difficult to uh, dispel because we can't necessarily fall back on the harm principle there. Because people who are coming at this from a very religious standpoint and whose axiomatic, um, fundamental sort of worldview rests on Their particular religious uh, viewpoint being correct, their um, holy text being correct, will form the rest of their views from that. And we'll be able to argue that because their holy text states that homosexuality is sinful, is harmful, is harmful to God, perhaps, that it negates the harm principle. And that means we need to get into a much more complex argument about conflicting
1: moral standards between religious and cultural groups. The first thing I would say is that in society in general, I think it's probably not a good idea to use religious text as an arbiter of morality. Uh, But even for individuals and for specific religions, I think it's important to remember that interpretations do change over time. uh, And what we claim as fixed, specific, unshakable tenets of a religion or a faith are again often things which change over time. Now, I don't claim to be a theologian or an expert in Christianity or Islam or Hinduism, uh, but I do claim to be a reasonably good historian. And I think it's fair to say if you look at past uh, Christian or Muslim or Hindu societies, there were certain practices and actions and beliefs which were widely accepted and widely understood to be within the boundaries of that religion or even actively encouraged by that religion. Uh, For example... Uh, Anti-Semitism in in medieval Christianity was encouraged. Uh, the idea that the Jews had killed Jesus, so they're all up, you know, they're all up for grabs. They're all Bible targets, and of course there were massive pogroms across uh, medieval Europe, and many uh, Jews ended up fleeing to North Africa and the Middle East in Islam. Until about, I would say, 200 years ago, as in Christianity, religion was used in in order to justify slavery and It was a widespread belief amongst Muslims and Christians that slavery was mandated and, you know, was allowed as a result of these religious texts. Uh, There are arguments about Islamic jurisprudence and whether it encourages you to free your slaves, but most people would broadly accept that it was okay to own a slave subject to certain conditions. Uh, In Hinduism, you had the idea of the caste system and untouchable people who were at the bottom of the social ladder and would be shunned and treated terribly. And that would seem as perfectly legitimate because of an understanding of karma, the fact that they had done something wrong in a past life. And so in this life, they were untouchable and at the bottom of the rung. All of those things, um, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, would nowadays generally say are not acceptable. Uh, and the key thing to remember is that it's not just the case that those people in the past were abusing the religion or using it just to justify horrible practices, they genuinely believed that was the morally correct interpretation of the religious texts and of the religion. And today, most Christians, Muslims, and Hindus would say that is absolutely not what those religious texts say. But the people in the past were absolutely convinced of the righteousness, the correctness of that interpretation. Uh, And so I think it's to say we have to, we have to presume that in the future, Christians, uh, Hindus, Muslims may believe slightly different things to the very deeply held convictions that Christians, Muslim, Hindus have today.
0: Yeah, and this is, if anything, the central point of today's podcast. And this is something that's sort of slightly difficult for me to talk about as someone who doesn't adhere to any particular religious belief or particular religious order or group. Um, that a lot of people will put forward arguments for anything. And this doesn't necessarily have to be about LGBT issues. And a defense for their argument is that it's their religious belief. And they sort of, in doing so, check out of ownership of that. Well, there's nothing I can do about it. It's out of my hands. That is what my religion says. I am sort of bound by my faith to adhere to this. And that argument doesn't stand up to scrutiny if we properly look at different interpretations of of religions because whatever it is, whatever tenet, whatever belief, whatever truth uh, one individual who claims to be a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, whatever, might hold, you can guarantee that somewhere in the world there is someone else who has that same identity, who also believes themselves to be a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or whatever it is, who disagrees with that point, who believes just as strongly, just as firmly in their faith, believes something different. And it's the importance of history that we don't just look at the different religious groups and the different interpretations that individuals have that are around today, but that we look back across the history of these religions and we look at all of those people's views and how those views have changed over time to realise this. And it's really important that we don't, approach these views of other people and other groups of people's beliefs in different parts of the world and in different times with any sort of prejudice or with any sort of arrogance in believing that our interpretation, or our view of the world or perhaps our strength of belief in whatever tenet this is, is stronger, better, more logical than those that have come before or those that are held by other people and if we go into any of these arguments with the basic fundamental assumption we mentioned a lot in the democracy podcast that all people are of the same fundamental value that all people's um ideas all people's uh contribution towards politics is of equal worth then that doesn't stand up to scrutiny now what i'm not saying is that religion is never a uh, legitimate argument for anything What I'm saying is that when anyone uses their religious belief as an argument or as the backing for an argument, they need to take ownership of that belief as being their own and as being their own choice, because the moment there is someone else out there who has a different interpretation of the same belief, we have to defend why we've chosen our interpretation and not the other, and that belief is still ours still backed by our own internal whatever system we've come to to come to that decision. It's not
1: a sort of an external rule imposed upon us. Again, we're not claiming here to be redefining any religion or claiming to have great theological knowledge. Just as we said, pointing out that interpretations of religions have changed over time, and it's kind of arrogant to, to claim that the one interpretation you have is the only true interpretation Across the world and throughout history, uh, but let's, for the sake of argument, say that you are a religious person and you genuinely believe that being LGBT or acting in a uh, acting on LGBT desires is impermissible or immoral according to the tenets of your faith. Uh, the, uh, the tricky question then becomes. Should such people, should religious people who genuinely believe being LGBT is immoral, be able to impose that on others or otherwise express that belief? Again, this is, this is anecdotal rather than statistical, but the vast majority of religious people that I've interacted with, I think, hold the belief that it is okay to be LGBT uh, as long as you are not a member of that religious community. It's viewed, I think, in a very similar way to, for example, if you're Muslim, you wouldn't eat pork, but if someone over there eats pork and they're not Muslim, that's fine. It's effectively an application of the harm principle argument. So I think it is fairly uncontroversial, at least for religious people that I've encountered myself, that LGBT people can exist just somewhere else. I think a second tricky point, though, is whether there's a distinction between believing um, that being LGBT is wrong, saying that out loud, and acting in such a way as to suppress people's LGBT actions.
0: So to pick a particular policy here, the legality of same-sex marriage, for those people uh, who think that homosexuality is wrong from a religious standpoint, but who apply the harm principle and say, well, other people with other religious standpoints who think it's okay, it's okay for them, they should support um, the legality of same-sex marriage in this country. And actually the legislation around same-sex marriage in this country is built built around those people. So same-sex marriage is legal in um, registry offices, in secular marriages, but individual churches and mosques and religious organizations and institutions have the right to allow or deny same-sex marriages in their particular religion.
1: Um, and in in my view, I'm not sure if you agree with this, I do think that forcing a, a mosque or a church to perform a same-sex marriage uh, against their will and against their understanding of their religious tenets would be a violation of the harm principle, because the mosque or the church or that religious institution is a voluntary organisation, and you choose whether or not to belong to it. And if you choose to belong to it, then to some degree you have to accept its tenants uh, or the practices of that specific institution or or building or organisation. I would refer here to quite an interesting American legal case called Wisconsin versus Yoda, um, Yoda spelled Y-O-D-E-R rather than the small green Jedi, which uh, involved an an, an Amish community. The Amish are a very Rural uh, group of uh, of Christians in America who totally disavow technology and modern life, um, and the court case was about whether raising children within this community was kind of a, an abuse of their of their their rights to be exposed to education and modern life and so on. Um, and what the court ruled was that uh, as long as the children had the opportunity to see modern life with technology and experience it and have the right to choose whether to remain within the secluded Amish community or whether to join the modern world, as it were, then it was perfectly okay for the Amish to have that very closed-off insular lifestyle. And that, I think, is my general perspective on religious groups, that you can't decide necessarily objectively what is oppressive, because as per the harm principle, different people have different views of what is harmful. But as far as possible, exit and entry to those groups needs to be totally free. If you think that group is oppressive, then you should be totally free to leave it. Um, And likewise, if you you agree with what that group is doing, you should be totally free to enter it. So I don't think the government should be able to legislate uh, as to necessarily what is harmful or oppressive, but individuals should have the complete choice to enter or leave that group. And this is where things get complicated and
0: actually where we have a neat tie in with our previous podcast on blasphemy uh, and freedom to blaspheme is that it may well be the case that viewing homosexuality as acceptable within some spheres where people within that cultural or religious group see it as acceptable and unacceptable in other spheres where people within that group see it as um, unacceptable Seems like it's upholding the harm principle, as long as, as you said, people are free to choose which group they are in, and people who think oh, there's wrong, there's no pressure on them to be homosexual. But we can seriously question the extent to which that is true, and the extent to which religious groups and cultural groups are freely entered into and exited from. And I would invite any uh, of our listeners who are under 18, and in fact, some of them who are over 18, to imagine what would happen if they went to their parents and said that they were no longer part of the religious group that their parents are from, they no longer believe in it, or they no longer saw themselves as part of the uh, cultural or ethnic group that their parents were from, they no longer identified with that. Because I think quite a lot of them would then realize that their membership of those groups is not actually completely of their
1: own choosing. So there are two points I'd, I'd like to draw from that. The first is that although, as I've said, I, I believe in, in theory that groups can do whatever they want as long as there is free entry and exit uh, in terms of that group, in practice that's much more difficult because there are kind of intangible uh, cultural barriers or there is intangible... Intragroup oppression or uh, intangible uh, intragroup pressure to stay within the boundaries or the the generally recognized boundaries of that group. Um, And that's hard to to pin down physically uh, and to define. The second thing is that, as we've said previously, uh, and as a recurring theme of these podcasts, identities, specifically group identities, evolve over time. And even though the name of a group may remain the same, Uh, what constitutes that group or the characteristics that define it may evolve quite significantly. So someone may feel as if they don't have to disavow the group, they can change their practices and stay within it, and obviously if enough people think that, then the identity of the group as a whole will shift. And I suppose the conclusions
0: from that are that trying to restrict that process and uh, branding people who stray slightly from the traditional way of doing things, is as heretics or blasphemers or as traitors, um, is fighting a harmless and <laughs> natural, not to use the naturalistic fallacy um, protest that had happened throughout history to all religious and cultural groups and is really
1: ultimately futile. And again, to clarify, this is not something we're saying should be made illegal. It should not be illegal to be a traditionalist um, but this is part of the process and the discussion uh, and the debate of of how uh, groups and cultural associations evolve and change over time. And really, the only thing I would say is that violence in, in terms of suppressing or advancing those arguments should be made illegal, but the arguments themselves are just part of how humans act. It also highlights a weakness at the heart of the idea of tradition,
0: which is that these evolutions of the way cultures see themselves and the definition of what it means to be part of a group happen slowly over time continuously. And so it's not a case of, when we say evolution, it's not a case of one binary change. From Being English meant X, now it means what? Um, that definition has changed slowly over time as lots of different people have, have changed their ideas. And so when we talk about, when anyone talks about the traditional way of doing something, how far back are they going? By traditional, what they probably mean is the way it was when I grew up. But actually, to be that way, it would have had to evolve from how that group saw itself, what the uh, sort of predominant interpretation of a particular religion was a hundred years before that, and that in itself was astray
1: from the interpretation from 100 years before that etc 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 or more concisely before we return back to the the main argument every tradition was once an innovation Th- yeah thanks That's not- <laughs> <laughs> i should make it clear that what
0: we're saying here is not that traditional things are bad um, which is often how this argument is misinterpreted what we're saying is that tradition is a vague and meaningless term and so Arguing that something is traditional in support of it makes no sense, but equally arguing that something is bad because it's traditional makes no sense either. The traditionality of something is irrelevant and new innovation should be judged on their own merit, not put down or supported simply because they're
1: new. So wrapping up everything that we've discussed so far, I think it is widely accepted that, uh, you know, adults can choose whether to, to join or to leave a community and if adults within a religious community feel um, that they are LGBT and they want to express that, they can choose to leave the community or, as we've said, they can choose to, to begin redefining the terms of that community or their, their niche within that community as a process of cultural evolution as has happened for the last thousand years. What's a much trickier argument or a much trickier discussion point, I think, is how do children fit into this because it is widely accepted in in any society that to some degree parents can do things against their children's consent it is also widely accepted there are limits to this i think no one would say that you know you can kill your child uh, or you can severely injure them Um, but most people would accept that you are allowed to tell your child no If your child wants to do something, you can stop them from doing it. If your child doesn't want to do something, you can make them do it. As a very mundane example, eat their vegetables even though they don't want to. The tricky question is how does LGBT or how do LGBT rights fit into this? Uh, If a child within a religious community or a religious family which believes that being LGBT is immoral, feels that they are LGBT should their parents be able to restrict that? Before we get into this properly,
0: something we should say is that one of our motivations behind this podcast, one of the things that we wanted to try and uh, show and demonstrate to students and, and to others, to all listeners, is that controversial and difficult topics in politics, in philosophy, in morality, need discussing. And it is possible to discuss them in rational logical sensible sensitive ways and to try as much as possible to come to clear rational conclusions. But approaching these problems in a rational way often doesn't necessarily come to a logical conclusion. There are not empirically testable scientific answers to many of life's big questions and it's an important part of being a social scientist, forming a worldview uh, being a good citizen, however you want to think about it, to realise that there are questions in life that don't necessarily have a hard and fast answer, and to be comfortable with a certain degree of not understanding something, to realise that you can't fully understand something. Because often, quite frankly, uh, being sure of an understanding of something that is complex and beyond anyone's understanding, really, is dangerous our answers from this point forward represent our own personal beliefs rather than any sort of hard and fast generally accepted political theory.
1: So my view on this uh, is that as with most issues with a grey area or a blurred line, you can point to things which are clearly on either side of the line which are okay or not okay. Uh, In the sense of parents who believe that being lgbt is immoral or impermissible i think it should be flatly illegal uh, to conduct any kind of conversion therapy for our listeners who don't know what that is it takes a variety of forms but effectively it's an attempt to it, it's an attempt to remove or cure homosexuality from an individual uh, often associated with painful external stimuli like electric shocks try and get them to associate homosexuality with pain and therefore deter them from being homosexual. I think that is flatly abusive. Uh, it should be illegal. There is no debate in my mind about whether a parent should be able to do that to their child. They should not. On the other extreme side of it, I think, as we said previously in in episodes about freedom of speech and the harm principle, Everyone is entitled to their views, and even if you find those views wrong or repulsive or slightly offensive, that doesn't mean you can stop them from saying them. And I do not think that a parent saying they think being LGBT is immoral or they think it's wrong should be made illegal. That is their prerogative as an individual being able to express themselves freely, even if others disagree with them. You might say it's bad parenting, but there are plenty of examples of bad parenting which should not be made illegal.
0: I, I broadly agree with that. I tend to be quite hardline on these sort of things when we're discussing the extent to which uh, cultural traditions are a force of good. I tend to argue that they are not, and that the idea of being part of a group of people who do things in a particular way is, um, when the chips are down, more oppressive than anything else. And so, while I agree with you, that um, conversion therapy should definitely be illegal, and that the way in which parents raise their children and what they say to them and the values that they instill in them um, cannot be dictated by law. That's an extremely dangerous precedent, um, that that violates freedom of speech, really. Um, I still do believe that it is wrong on a sort of personal, moral level for any parent to um, instill in their child that homosexuality is wrong, the idea that homosexuality is wrong, partly because that then means that, that child is then going to take that forward into the world, but mostly because, if you believe, as I do, that homosexuality is something ingrained, it is not a choice, it is possible, in fact, you know, statistically it's going to be true uh, at some point, that that child might be LGBT themselves, and that telling that child that LGBT thoughts or LGBT identification or an LGBT lifestyle or whatever is, uh, is sinful, is sending them to hell, makes them a bad person, uh, means that God doesn't love them, however you phrase it, is
1: abusive, uh, and is not acceptable. On a personal level, I do agree with you. I think it is very psychologically damaging for a child who is gay or lesbian or bisexual to be told by their parents that that is evil or immoral or wrong. Uh, I do personally feel that that is wrong and I do agree with you. But going back again to our previous discussions, I am worried about state or government overreach in terms of legislating what can and can't be said or done, and I think on balance, that it is very difficult to objectively legislate what is harmful in that sense. And, again, I think it comes down to previous discussions that we've had that we may disagree with certain things, but legislating against them is a different matter. And these are things which should be heavily discouraged as bad parenting. Uh, But to make them illegal, I think, puts us uh, us onto very tricky grounds. And this is a conclusion of
0: liberalism that we keep coming back to episode after episode, that there are actions or uh, words or thoughts that we think are wrong or we think are right, but we don't believe that the state has the right to dictate that those things are correct or incorrect. And so the way in which society needs to move forward and the way in which those views need to be changed is, and we overuse this word every single week, dialogue and discussion between people of different views and people uh, who believe different things to share their views with each other in a calm, uh, uh, sensitive, measured, friendly manner um, so that people really analyse their views and that views slowly over time are changed as people see that their positions are not logical. or that they infringe the harm principle, that they might be oppressive to other people. And an important step in that is the central point of today's podcast, which is that cultural groups, whether they be tied to a religion or not, evolve and change over time, both in their membership and in their meaning. And people need to accept that if they're going to change their views for the good and need to accept that changing their mind. Updating their views doesn't betray um, any sort of tradition or betray their background. It is a natural protest. uh, It is a good protest. And it is an essential part of that dialogue on which liberalism rests.
1: There are two clarifying remarks I'd like to make on that. The first is that I think both of us are in quite a lucky position that we don't fall into this category. And it's very easy to say, you know, discuss it, it will change over time, be patient Uh, for an LGBT child in any religious family uh, where the family does not accept them. That's a a difficult thing to do because it's part of their daily existence and saying, oh, just accept it, have patience is not something that would give them a great deal of comfort. The second clarification, which I would like to link to that, is uh, referring back to the, the previous case I discussed, Wisconsin versus Yoda, in the USA about the Amish community and exposure to modern life uh, and alternative ways of doing things. And whilst I don't think that it should be legislated that parents cannot have homophobic views, I think it is very, very important or even crucial for that argument to hold up that children have a space where the alternative view is presented. Uh, And for that reason, why I whereas I don't think it should be legislated that parents cannot have homophobic views. I think it should be absolutely imperative that within an educational environment, it should be made absolutely clear that being gay is not wrong, is not immoral, and that parents should not be allowed to withdraw their children from PSHG or other sessions which put forward that view. Uh, It is not the case that parents should not be allowed to say what they want But it is also the case that children must be exposed to all of the alternative views so that, as we've said, their entry and exit from that group is a free choice based on a full understanding uh, of the various positions on it.
0: Absolutely. And listeners should also be beginning to realise, we mentioned earlier, uh, sort of uh, rationales that we had for making this podcast in the first place. Our belief in the importance of dialogue to the functioning of democracy and of just societies um, is another rather high-minded reason why we started this podcast. But of course, dialogue is a two-way street. We've had our say. You've been kind enough to listen to it for 40 minutes, but we'd love to hear what you think. Whether you agree with us, whether you disagree with us, whether you're confused at all by anything we've said, please do let us know. You can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. You can tweet to our handle at underscore the violet underscore, or you can visit our website. And don't forget, we do also take uh, requests for particular topics that anyone would like us to discuss as this episode was. Thank you. And we hope you are seen in next week.